Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Inflation is surging at the fastest pace in 40 years, and investors are understandably looking to protect their wealth. Many different asset classes are touted as potential inflation hedges, but all is not as it seems with many of these claims. I want to know what investments provide the best chance of keeping up with inflation, and if it actually makes sense to change strategy and seek to hedge. And later, we answer the dumb question of the week. What does it mean when people say the Fed is behind the curve? OK, let's get into it. So inflation is top of everyone's minds when it comes to investing these days. It's running at 7% in the UK and around Europe, and over 8% in the United States. And inevitably, everyone's mind turns to how can we insulate ourselves from this problem which eats away at our wealth? And that means looking for hedges, as the term goes. So Roman, maybe let's start with what do we mean when we say a hedge against inflation? So this is the idea that if you've got a portfolio and it's got some undesired property, well, you can actually buy another asset which cancels out that property. It's called hedging. So a hedge against inflation would be something that actually increases in value as inflation rises. But if you've got an institutional investor, they've got many more choices of hedge than we do as retail investors. And that's always the problem. It does make me feel really fancy talking about hedges. It makes me think, yeah, we're proper investors now. <laughs> <laughs> but to get it right is really difficult. Finding something which really does hedge and doesn't actually act against you is actually not that easy. Yeah, that's the key, isn't it? So many things are touted as hedges, especially when it comes to inflation. Everyone has the thing that they claim is going to outperform. And really with inflation, it's interesting because if you do invest for a long period of time, and everything we focus on, obviously, is as long-term investors, the real game here is to beat inflation. That's the real goal of a long-term investor. What's the rate of return on your investments versus inflation? And of course, if it's significantly less, then you know, you'll be losing money in real terms. So that's your real hurdle rate, if you like, long term. So for institutional investors, but for things like endowments, or maybe a family that has dynastic wealth, there you're trying to preserve your wealth and beat inflation over a very long period of time. And so you kind of obsess about inflation. But I guess when we're talking about hedging against inflation, presuming we think the high inflation is somewhat temporary and will end, we're talking about a short-term consideration, aren't we? And in a way, trying to time the market. Because what we're trying to do is hedge against unexpected, above-average inflation, not the normal 2 or 3% that we see. Well, it's interesting if you look at drawdowns, and here we're talking about the time it takes for a market to return to its previous peak in real terms. In other words, if you inflation adjust it, you can have very extended drawdown periods once you start to factor in inflation. Now, in the case of equity markets, I think the worst case was like a 13-year period of, of drawdown. And that wasn't due to inflation. That was simply because there was a double crisis. That was the dot-com bubble followed by the financial crisis in 2008. Exactly. And, you know, that's the worst case I've found for equity for the US, because I can use Robert Schiller's data there. But what's interesting is that if you go back to the 1970s and 80s, that Volcker period of super high inflation, the actual drawdown at that point was actually shorter. Yeah, so the second longest crash period, if you like, in real terms for the equity market in the US was between 1973 and 1985, and that was 11.9 years. So not quite as bad as the 2000-2013 one, but still pretty bad. Yeah, so if it started now, we'd be looking at, you know, 
2035 or something before we got back to par. Yeah, a very long time. I mean, just imagine it. I mean, we're not used to that at all. <laughs> the biggest sell-off that has been recently has literally taken a very short period of time to recover. I mean, I almost don't want to imagine that it's possible. I've grown up in this bull market. It can go on forever. <laughs> but for you, it's great, Michael. You know, you'd have an extended period when equity was cheap. So that's true. When you're 50, 60 my age, then you'll be thinking, oh, well, thank goodness for that period. It's a buying opportunity, right? That's what everyone says. But it doesn't <laughs> feel like it. <laughs> But still, I think I think what's interesting is if you look at Schiller's CAPE ratio and slice the distribution according to inflation, when inflation's this high, normally the CAPE ratio is much, much lower because it takes all of the euphoria and joy out of markets. Typically, it would be around just under 15 times as a multiple of earnings. And where are we at the moment? But at the moment, we're at something like 35 times. So it's just a hugely overinflated market, given what's going on with inflation. So it's as if markets are just saying, oh, it's different this time. We can look through this inflation as if it's not there. There's always an excuse for why this time is different. I saw some people saying the bond market and the stock market are telling us different things. Like the bond market is saying, whoa, watch out. Whereas the stock market is just sort of carrying on as if the problem isn't really there. Oh, yeah. For the bond market, this is the end of the world. I mean, to see a sell-off, the biggest drawdown ever for the TLT fund, the long duration US Treasury fund. I mean, you only see that, you know, once every, well, since the fund was created in 2001, right? So This must be heartbreaking to you as a bond lover. <laughs> <laughs> there are loads of different types of bonds, though. You know, you've got convertibles, you've got inflation linked, which we'll talk about in a sec, I'm sure. But yeah, I mean, it's not pleasant. But of course, just like, you know, there's an opportunity to buy equity when it falls in value, then there's an opportunity to buy bonds when they've crashed. So maybe let's think about what actually would be a kind of perfect hedge in theory. Like if we knew this high inflation was going to last, let's say, three years, what would we want the hedge to do? To rise right now, and then if we timed it perfectly, to get back into our normal portfolio just as inflation was coming back down? Well, the ideal hedge would be one that didn't hurt you as inflation came back to normal, which unfortunately they don't do. Yeah. But, but then when inflation was high, it would exactly match the rate of growth or even exceed it. And sort of counterbalance the rest of your portfolio, which is suffering because of the inflation. Yeah. And ideally, I mean, it would rise a lot, you know, during these inflationary periods. So you wouldn't need a lot of it. You wouldn't need to put a lot of capital into it in order to offset the losses due to inflation. I suspect what you're going to tell us is such an asset does not exist. (laughs) (laughs) And there's no Father Christmas, yeah. Unfortunately, there isn't. I mean, the closest thing is probably inflation-linked bonds, but they're really tricky as an asset class to understand, but also to use in your portfolio. So I get lots of questions about these during power hours right now. Because people are, of course, obsessed with inflation and how they can hedge. I mean, the word inflation's in the name of the asset, inflation-linked bonds. Surely they should be good. Yeah, it seems that way, doesn't it? But of course, it's never that simple. The real problem is that, let's say you've got two bonds, right? So a normal government bond. So Her Majesty's government, the debt management office, they decide to raise, I don't know, 100 billion So they issue two bonds, right? So 50 billion of a normal 10-year government bond. That goes to the Conservative Party donors. (laughs) Oh, very good. And then 50 billion of an inflation-linked bond. Now, the coupon, the actual amount that the inflation-linked bond pays, would be less than it would be for the nominal bond. The reason for that is that the government kind of knows that over the life of the bond, what's going to happen is inflation will push up its principal value and the coupons. 
So that means that there's a break-even rate of inflation over the life of those two bonds, at which the inflation-linked bond will actually pay more to you as an investor, if you hold it for the 10 years, than the nominal bond. So that's the break-even rate. Imagine it's a race, right? So the inflation-linked bond starts off with a handicap. It starts, you know, 100 metres behind the normal government bond. Then over the course of the 100 metres, what usually happens is the inflation-linked bond runs faster, particularly during periods of high inflation. Yeah, so inflation is like the wind at the back, pushing this inflation-linked bond faster and faster. If the wind stops and inflation goes down, then you just want the nominal bond, which will be better. But what's weird is the wind actually helps the inflation-linked bond, but not the nominal. That's the problem. It actually hurts the nominal bond. That's the real race that you're betting on if you buy inflation-linked bonds. So what's the break-even rate at the moment in the UK, say? Okay, so the last time they published the break-even rate from the Bank of England, the 10-year break-even was 4.1%. So that's pretty high. Yeah. Investors are expecting inflation to be double the target rate of the Bank of England for 10 years. That's telling me that there's a lot of inflation baked into it. So really, you've got to ask yourself, do I think the Bank of England will fail to get inflation below an average of 4.1% over the next decade? And that's a pretty bold statement, if, if that's what you think. But if it is what you think, then yeah, you'd buy the inflation-linked bonds, the ones with a duration of roughly 10 years, rather than nominal. And what's the break-even in the US? Yeah, so for the US, the 10-year break-even is 2.98. Yeah, so much lower than the UK one, because presumably they think that the US will get inflation under control more easily or more effectively than the Bank of England. What I've seen a lot of people saying is, that, oh, I thought inflation was going to be high. I bought these inflation-linked bonds, and they've actually fallen in value year to date. And they're thinking, well, this doesn't make sense. But I think what they're missing is inflation isn't the only thing which affects these bonds. Yeah, so these bonds will be, the inflation-linked ones, will be driven by real yield. And in the UK, unfortunately, they also tend to have a really long maturity. So that means they're very, very sensitive to slight movements of interest rates. Whereas if you look at US inflation-linked bonds, they call them tips over there, they tend to have a maturity which is much shorter, around seven to 10 years. So that's why, you know, you're not taking such a big duration risk with US tips as you are with UK linkers. Yeah, I think the important thing to remember is they're still bonds. They're not magic. They're just taking one of the risks off the table. And adding a new one, which is interest rate risk. So unless you're comfortable with huge duration risk, which means a lot of volatility, which means the price can go down when interest rates are rising, then you shouldn't really buy them. So that's why I think it's important to understand all this stuff if you're going to buy the hedge. And of course, the hedge can hurt you. You know, we said there is no perfect hedge. This hedge actually introduces new risks and risks which you'd have to be comfortable with. I think if you're listening to the podcast, drink a shot every time we say hedge, you'll have a great time this today. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should do that, Michael. <laughs> yeah, it might make more sense. A shot of tea. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else to be aware of with these inflation-linked bonds? Oh, well, I think the one thing that's important to understand, if you actually buy an inflation-linked bond... The principle that you're paid is increasing in line with a certain index of inflation. And so are the coupon payments. So if you look at really old inflation-linked bonds in the UK, they can have a value of like 400 or more. And they started at 100. Yeah, bonds always are priced at 100, right? They can be up to 102, 98, something like that. That's what you'd expect to see. But these things are crazy because they kind of trade at these ridiculously high prices. So that's the big difference. But then the key question is, which rate of inflation are they linked to? And of course, the ONS, the Office for National Statistics, they publish 
various flavours of inflation. The one they've had for the longest is called RPI, which is retail price inflation. And that actually includes the cost of owning a home, for example. And it usually runs considerably above consumer price inflation, CPI. Even the version of CPI, which includes home ownership costs, CPIH, usually it's about 1% higher. Yeah, I think RPI is kind of a discontinued statistic in some way now. It's interesting, yeah, because the ONS hates it. <laughs> and they've been trying to reform it and they've been warning about it. Don't use it, don't use it, it's terrible. Yeah, but the government likes to use it for things where it's in their favour, like the interest rate on student debt, for example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not a coincidence, right. But, you know, when it's not in their favour with inflation-linked government bonds... The RPI is being replaced. Is that correct? Yes. And and it's interesting because they've said that they're going to actually delay the introduction of the switch in index. So they're switching to CPI. CPI, which is lower. So you'll get le- paid less, in other words, over the long term, because you'll be indexed to something which rises less. If an emerging market did this, we might call it a default. <laughs> oh, harsh. Harsh, Michael. But don't you think? Like, they're just <laughs> unilaterally changing something after the fact. Well, I guess it is a kind of a haircut. Or you could say, I mean, some people, I mean, sophisticated people would stroke their beard and say, well, people have been pricing in this switch for some time. It's been warned for some time. There was a kind of there were various papers that were published by the DMO that were saying we we're going to do this. So you could say, well, it was already priced. But yeah, I guess if you're being a bit harsh, you could say <laughs> it's, a, it's a default. But, you know, the coupons are paid out. They always have for the UK and they always will, I think. But still, yeah, bit of a shock. And it could cause a disruption in the pricing of UK linkers. Certainly this isn't going to happen in the US, for example. And from what I understand... The people who might most benefit from buying inflation-linked bonds are when you're approaching, say, retirement and inflation, you know, can do a lot of damage to your prospects. For example, if you look at target retirement funds, which are issued by Vanguard, for example, as you approach retirement age and go beyond it, they gradually seg away from things like nominal bonds to inflation-linked bonds, as you say, for this very reason. Because, of course, you know, if you're, you're a pensioner with a fixed income, then the last thing you want to see, the mortal enemy of fixed income is inflation, unless it's CPI linked or RPI linked. But for people who are in the accumulation phase, maybe they're younger, they're building their wealth. Over the long term, the more money you put in bonds versus equity is going to hurt you, probably. Yeah, because if you look at what's beat inflation best over the long term, historically, it's been equity by far. Bonds have failed to beat inflation by so much simply because their rate of return is lower. So really, inflation beating long term is equity. That's the answer. Yeah, that's the distinction, isn't it? If we're trying to head short term, then equity tends to do badly when inflation is high. But over the long term, if you just buy and hold, you should be okay. But, you know, we all think, oh, we can time the market a bit, which is basically what we're talking about here with hedging. Yeah, equity is pretty good as an inflation hedge even during the short term, as long as it doesn't get too high. So once it reaches about 5%, if you plot the earnings multiple versus inflation, it's this kind of beautiful Gaussian shape, which previously I referred to as a Mexican hat. Mexican hat function, you called it, yeah. Mexican hat function, which you seem to take issue with, Michael. <laughs> but it was to avoid saying the word Gaussian. It's a sombrero. It's a sombrero. Let's give it okay, so it's a sombrero. Okay. But, but, but the idea is that the peak of the sombrero, the greatest valuations are around 2 to 3% inflation. And then very rapidly, as you go above 4 or 5% inflation, the valuations come down pretty sharply. And suddenly inflation starts to eat away at margins for companies and they can't pass that on to their customers. So, you know, they take an earnings hit, a profit hit. 
And are there different kinds of stocks or sectors of stocks which do better and worse in high inflation environments? Yeah, so to some extent, you can move around the sector space and choose types of company which tend to hold up better during periods of inflation. It also depends on what the source of inflation is. So, for example, if it's energy prices, as it is this time around, then clearly if you go for the energy sector, you know, those stocks will do better. Things like consumer staples, you know, things like supermarkets, things which you have to buy just to live, consumer staples tend to hold up pretty well during periods of high inflation. Those are called the non-cyclical sectors, right? Yeah, so that would be non-cyclical, yeah. And utilities. Utilities, again, yeah, that would be another reasonable hedge. But the things which would be absolutely awful would be things like consumer discretionary. So that would be things like Amazon, for example, where you use it to buy some of the things which are luxuries in life. Netflix? Yeah. We've seen that take a smash recently. It's, they've lost subscribers for the first time in their history, I believe. And I think that's quite reasonable. You know, if you've got less income coming in, then do you really need a subscription to Amazon Prime, Netflix, Disney Plus? I mean, it doesn't help Netflix keep making terrible shows right now. Yeah, I mean, some of the content is just questionable. But I think some of these sectors hold up particularly well, but it depends on the source of inflation. So, for example, in the 80s in the UK, we had a big boom in the finance industry and we had all those yuppies suddenly appearing out of nowhere. Uh, pot calling the kettle black here, Roman. <laughs> I wasn't in the city in those days. I was just in school. Oh, I forget how old you are, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a really nice example of demand pull inflation, where you've got a booming sector, lots of new wealth, and then that pushes prices up because wages are rising in that sector. And then you'd also get a greater demand for goods and services, and then prices would get pushed up. But it would be for things like, I don't know, Champagne and Burberry. I don't know what people were buying in the 80s. <laughs> Cocaine, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Is that in the index? I don't think so. <laughs> too many dollars chasing too few goods, right? That's the demand pull inflation. That's it. You know, if that's, the, if that's the case, then you'd buy the sectors which would benefit from that. And in that case, consumer discretionary would do well. So it really depends on the particular type of inflation which you've got. And certainly this time around, it seems like it's very much driven by commodities supply bottlenecks, and that's been driving up prices. But now we are starting to see wage growth, which is pretty high. So in the US, the latest print was around 4.6%, I think, year-on-year -year growth in wages. And the Fed will be keeping a very close eye on that because that's their you know, nightmare. I mean, some people say the stocks to look for are ones with monopoly pricing power. Now, they shouldn't really exist in a society, right? You should be regulating away monopolies, but presumably they are out there. Yeah, so some things would be less price sensitive than others. For example, I'm thinking of things like Apple, where people seem to be willing to pay any price for these phones, even though they don't really offer features which other phones don't. Um, you can now make your face into a talking emoji, Roman. Yeah, I could hardly wait to do that. <laughs> So, you know, I, th I think those kind of things which people are almost pay willing to pay anything for, where there isn't price insensitive buying, they're just kind of dream hedge if you did want one and if you can find those rare stocks. But even that, I think, to some extent will be impacted if inflation gets too high. I think so. People will just hold on to their phones for longer, for example. Yeah. And that'll ultimately reduce revenue. So I think it's very difficult to find sectors where they really do have monopoly pricing power. I think Google might. Yeah, possible. Or maybe something like Amazon Web Services, where they really are dominant in that industry. But then the multiples of these tech companies are so high already that you can't believe there'll be a 
a brilliant hedge. Yeah. And if valuations are particularly high, you've got, just got to think, you know, in this environment, if we do get a recession, which will be the next step, or at least the next worry in this cycle, then, you know, those companies are going to be impacted because businesses will be spending less on their IT. And obviously, that's going to have an impact on even, you know, Amazon Web Services and Google and Microsoft, you know. Definitely. I think any macroeconomists listening to us will be furious that we've got this far into the episode and haven't mentioned any real assets yet. So let's get into it. Real assets are what everyone seems to say are the inflation hedge. And we're talking about things like gold and commodities, real estate, infrastructure, these physical things, people say, that's where you need to be when inflation gets out of control. Yeah. And this time around, if you'd have bought commodities going into this crisis, which by accident almost I did, then that's been a very good hedge. You know, that fund that I bought a while back now is now up about 80%. But it's because commodities have been so important to this crisis, this double crisis, if you like, the post-pandemic increase in demand, but also the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. So that double, double whammy, if you like, has created this surge in commodity prices, which is fairly unprecedented. And what about gold? That's the one, isn't it, that is controversial. It's, if you go online, everyone talks about gold as the inflation hedge. But I don't know that the stats really do back that up. I got in real trouble because I pointed out that cheese sandwiches would actually be a better inflation hedge than gold. If you look at the price of cheese in the UK back to 1940 and the price of bread, it's actually kept up in line with inflation better than gold has. So any commodity from that point of view will keep up with inflation. You know, anything which is useful. I mean, if its price increases by slightly less than inflation, then its price will fall to crazily low levels over a long period of time. Uh, and, you know, conversely, if it grows faster than inflation, then it just goes up to a crazy level. So everything, to some extent, is an inflation hedge. Everything which there's a demand for will have that inflation hedging quality. So why do people focus on gold then? What is it about it that means people want to buy it? Gold is kind of, I mean, it's kind of quasi-religious in the same sense that cryptocurrency is kind of quasi-religious as an inflation hedge. And all the people that used to post the comments when I made a gold video, suddenly the, the kind of narrative switched to inflation hedges via cryptocurrency. But the argument's pretty similar, which is that if you don't back your currency with something real, like gold, then ultimately it'll lose value over time and the government can manipulate its price over time, which to some extent is true. You know, the government does try, the central banks do try to keep inflation positive. So over time, you do have an eroding buying power for your cash. And that's just to try and get you to spend it, right? So you don't hoard cash or hoard money. But gold is still lower in real terms than it was at the start of the 80s. Yeah. It's been in a drawdown, a real drawdown, for a very long period of time, 40 years, as you say. But usually if that happened to an asset, people would be hating it. Why could people <laughs> don't hate gold so much? Well, I think it is a quasi-religious thing. You know, it was seen as something which would keep its value. You know, it has worked for a long period of time as a store of value, unlike cryptocurrency. You know, it has worked as a store of value for millennia. When people are in real dire straits, they sew gold into their clothes. You know, they, that's what you take with you because it's kind of portable and it's, it's still kept demand, even though there have been terrible crises in the past. Yeah, and it does sort of have a weird psychological appeal. And inflation is weirdly scary. So even me, who is a long-term investor and kind of hates gold as an asset, the other day I was watching Netflix. I drifted off because it's a terrible show. And I turned to my wife and said, should we buy some gold? <laughs> <laughs> Just panicked in a moment of panic. And she said, what are you talking about? 
this is everything you say you shouldn't do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I'd buy gold. I, I just don't like the asset. I don't like the wasting asset, which doesn't give you an income. For me, it would definitely be bonds I'd prefer. But, but look, I think, I think for some people, it has that kind of psychological comfort of something tangible, which you can literally bury in the garden. I mean, I'd probably buy it in the form of a ETF or something, so I wouldn't have anything to bury. But I did meet people, you know, I met a high net worth client. You know, I said, how much gold do you have? And he said, oh, yards, which means like over a billion in gold. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think for some people it does have that appeal. And, you know, it's not going to destroy your portfolio, probably. It is quite volatile. I think the advantage is it seems to be quite uncorrelated to stocks and bonds, so it could potentially lower volatility in your portfolio. Well, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. You know, its correlation actually flips positive and negative on a fairly regular basis. It's not a particularly good hedge, whereas if you buy something like treasuries, they do have a more consistently negative correlation. Not always, but often with equity. Of course, during this year, when yields have been rising, bond prices have been falling. Well, so have equities. Bonds have been an atrocious hedge at the beginning of this year, that's for sure. But gold has also been a lousy hedge. There's been nowhere to hide, really, in terms of, you know, safe places. Real estate is what's done well. Yeah, real estate so far has done very well. And that's often seen as another real asset. I mean, that's where the name comes from. But it's interesting, if you get exposure to real estate via REITs, real estate investment trusts, the type of REIT is critically important. So if you go for mortgage REITs, which are actually how mortgages are funded, so mortgage REITs package up mortgage debt, because they're fixed income instruments, when inflation is high, they tend to perform very poorly. Whereas if you buy equity REITs, which give you exposure to the income stream from rental properties, that actually gives you a very good hedge or a pretty good hedge. Because rents are going up in line with inflation. Exactly. If there's a really severe bout of inflation, then even equity REITs, I think, would struggle because, you know, ultimately it's going to slow down the economy and damage the economy. And REITs are very cyclical. So it really depends on, you know, how much inflation we get. And there's even some more obscure things that people talk about, like farmland. I've seen people on Pensioncraft referencing, how do I get exposure to farmland? There are private equity companies that buy farmland. I think there was one called Black Earth, which unfortunately was buying stuff in Ukraine. But I think, I think for retail investors, it's very difficult to get that kind of exposure. There was a plan, I think, to create a REIT for farmland in the UK, but I think it got shelved during the pandemic. I just wonder if it's people taking the word hedge a little too literally. Oh, very good, Michael. I'm a new dad. I've got to be allowed to make the odd dad joke, right? You're just getting warmed up. <laughs> yeah. Again, ultimately, there is no safe haven from extremely high inflation. Really, all you can do is take the long-term view and say, I know that if I buy equity, historically, even through periods of extremely high inflation, eventually it's won. Whereas bonds can take a lot longer to recover. Inflation-linked bonds do provide that hedge. So if you, if you do get extremely high surges in inflation, then you know, they will keep their value by design. Why do governments even issue inflation-linked bonds? Well, there is a demand for it. And think of it from the government's point of view. Do you think you're incompetent and unable to control inflation? No, of course you don't. <laughs> I mean, that is just a tee up with where we are right now. <laughs> <laughs> but from the government's point of view, what they think is, look, I can issue this bond at a cheaper rate of locked-in coupon today, 
or I can pay more interest on a nominal bond. So from their point of view, if they think they can control inflation, if they think the Bank of England can control inflation or the Fed, then, you know, it would make sense. Or if they can just switch the indexation whenever they like. Yeah, to something which is completely unrealistic. So they're basically betting that people are overestimating what inflation will be. So they've got cheaper funding costs for the government. That's their gamble. Yeah. So they're taking the other side of the bet, if you like. Also, there's a demand for it. So the government will issue debt to willing buyers. So wherever it sees a market where it can get reasonably cheap funding, it will. And in the UK, there's a life insurance industry. So think of it from the life insurance industry's point of view. They've got liabilities which are linked to the rate of inflation. So they'll buy assets which are linked to the rate of inflation over a very long period of time. So that's why the UK inflation-linked market is very much co-evolved with lifers, as we call them. So these are life insurance companies. And, you know, they want long duration because people live for a long time. I mean, I read that the UK government originally brought in these inflation-linked bonds in the early 80s because it was struggling to issue debt at long durations because there was you know, a struggling economy and people didn't really believe in the UK. Whereas if they linked it to inflation, people were a little bit more willing to take that bet. Yeah, I think there was a certain market for it. And the Debt Management Office, the DMO, which issues this stuff, the Treasury, they have to be sensitive to how they market this stuff. So wherever they see a demand, you know, that's what they'll issue. But in fact, the UK market's one of the oldest ones. The US market in inflation-linked bonds has come about fairly recently compared to, compared to the UK, say. But, you know, these bonds are very liquid. If you look at one of the funds which buys inflation-linked bonds in the UK, you'll see that it's literally got 20 bonds in it, because that's it. <laughs> and I used to know someone who worked on an inflation-linked derivatives desk, as it turned out. But he literally knew everybody who was in that market. They were almost on first, well, they were on first-name terms. So it is a very small niche market. And you can see why it's difficult to understand. You know, it's, it's linked to this inflation index. There's a lag built into the coupon and principal updating. There's leverage built in there implicitly because, you know, as the price increases, it increases in value. So very niche. And I suppose when we think about individually, is it worth trying to hedge against this hopefully short-lived inflation? But who knows, right? Who knows how long it will stay high? One of the things to consider is our lifestyle, right? So can we get pay rises which go up with inflation? That is a hedge in and of itself. Can we temporarily reduce our spending or substitute for cheaper products? You know, that's a way to hedge against inflation. So there's all kinds of ways to hedge your lifestyle that aren't just related to your investments. Yeah, some unpleasant people have been saying the best hedge is to earn more. I mean, I'm trying not to be unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> but, but really, that is, that is the gamble you're making, which is that you know, your wage will keep up in line with inflation. And in many cases, that won't be true. Yeah, real wages are falling. Oh, sharply in the UK, even though we are seeing fairly high wage growth. But it's interesting, if you go back to the 70s, and look at US wage growth during that period of very high inflation, the Volcker period. During that time, wages did almost keep in line with inflation, which is pretty surprising, given that you know, inflation was above 10%. But weren't there structural reasons where there was union bargaining agreements which kind of forced wages up in line with inflation? Exactly, which is simply not there now. And so if you look at wage growth in the US now, this time around, it's deeply negative in real terms because of that very fact. So the real question is, will wages eventually rise in real terms to compensate for the money that we've lost? Otherwise, you know, our living standards will be lower on a permanent basis unless, unless there is some kind of catch up. And the other point, I think, is that, as you hinted at earlier, 
the value of debt gets eroded by inflation. So is it the case that if we hold a lot of fixed rate personal debt, say as a mortgage, you know, it's a good time to have debt? Yeah, if you're heavily indebted and inflation's running hot, then as long as you can service the debt, yeah, you're okay. And as long as your wages actually keep up with inflation, even better, because effectively the size of your mortgage is shrinking at the rate of inflation, which is great. But unfortunately, what usually happens when you have very high inflation is the central bank will whack up interest rates. You could say they manufacture higher unemployment. That's their goal. Because in a tight labour market, you can have wage negotiation. Tight labour market just means that there's low unemployment. So they're trying to manufacture higher unemployment, but not enough to crash the economy. That's the goal. Well, the central bank can only really control the demand side of the equation. That's right. If it wants to lower inflation, it kind of has to take a whack on demand. Yeah, they have no other choice. They have no other tools which they can use. The government, of course, can, I guess, affect the supply side. But, but at least I think that's the problem, which is the next stage in this episode of high inflation will be higher unemployment. And then usually it comes with some kind of recession, either deep or shallow, but ultimately it means people losing jobs, which is never pleasant. No. And to me, the question I'm really thinking about, it's like I kind of am comfortable with the inflation. I think it will come down over, you know, a year or two years. But the question in my mind is, are we going to get stagflation where growth is really poor at the same time? Because that, from what I've seen historically, seems to be just devastating for equities and bonds. Yeah, and there aren't many investments you can make in that kind of period of stagflation, which do well. Equity doesn't, bonds don't. It's really the worst of all scenarios. So let's just hope that doesn't happen. I think it's unlikely to last for long. We've said that before, though, haven't we? Yeah. Well, you, ne- you never really know. I mean, I never make forecasts about that kind of thing because I just wouldn't trust them. I think my thinking is just got to stick to the plan. I mean, we're going to have these periods where everything looks uncertain. And as we always say, like, if you're investing for the long term, it should hopefully all be OK in the end. We've been through these things before. Well, just look back in history and look at when valuations were low. It was at times of huge economic worry, you know, after the financial crisis, during the very high inflation periods of the past. And that's when you've really got to stick to the plan. And that's when it's most difficult. But that's why having valuation as a guide is so useful, because you can see through all of the kind of noise and misery to the kind of shining goal in the distance. Okay, so I think that's why it's helpful, because it lets you look through the misery to the joy ahead. But it does feel like we haven't got into the misery in terms of the equity market yet. It feels like we may be just on the precipice. Who knows, right? You can't call market crashes. We know that. But there's so many things at the moment. High inflation, war in Europe, supply bottlenecks, China still pursuing zero COVID, that you think, this can't end well, surely. And historically, there have been usually periods of very poor returns when valuations are this high. So it wouldn't be very surprising, I don't think, if we did get a period of lower returns. Yeah, if we were here in a year's time and the equity market was 30% down, we couldn't be surprised by that, really, could we? No, certainly not, based on history. I mean, like I said, when inflation's this high, above 8% in the US, equity is much lower in terms of valuations. Historically, it's never been this high in terms of valuations for such a high inflation rate. So I'm surprised that it's so high that there's still so much euphoria built into equity prices still. 
I, I think it almost shows that the equity market's in a state of denial. You know, the bond market's kind of capitulated, but the equity market is just, yeah, <laughs> like in a wily coyote type moment. And there seems to be so many new events happening. You're like, what is the thing that's going to pop this? <laughs> We've had enough things where I think, oh, this is what's going to pop it. Global pandemic, war on European soil. Yeah, lockdown in Shanghai and critically important cities. I mean, what else could there be? Let's just not tempt fate. And uh, <laughs> what else could there be? Meteor strike. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's the next one. If you've been affected by inflation and you're worried about how to hedge your portfolio, a great way to learn about investment is as part of our community. Just go to pensioncraft.com to learn more. Okay, today's dumb question of the week comes from Vanessa, who asks... What does it mean when I hear pundits say the Fed is behind the curve? Something you hear everyone saying right now. And, you know, I'll throw it over to you, Romin, but let's remember you are an apologist for the Fed. So (laughs) take what you say with a pinch of salt. (laughs) Let me just read out a section from this week's Economist, which is kind of interesting, where they talk about, you know, how the Fed in 2020 codified its views by promising not to raise interest rates until employment had already reached its maximum sustainable level. So the idea here is that you don't want to leave anyone behind. And even though the kind of broad unemployment measure had fallen pretty far after the pandemic, if you look at something like U6, the discouraged workers which are included in that showed that the rates still haven't fallen significantly. And if you look at minorities, for example, their rate took much longer to fall than, say, white people in the US. But the way The Economist puts it is interesting. It says, it's pledge guaranteed that it would fall far behind the curve. It was cheered on by left-wing activists, and I'm thinking of you here, Michael. (laughs) Me? (laughs) Who wanted to imbue one of Washington's few functional institutions with an egalitarian ethos. Disgusting. Disgusting (laughs) behaviour. Well, I was actually very much in favour of what Jerome Powell was saying, which is that, yeah, if you are a minority in the US, unemployment was still incredibly high when for, you know, white people it had fallen very sharply, the unemployment rate. So I think I think having that idea of trying to include as many people in the employment measure and focusing on the people who aren't, you know, the, the majority demographic is probably a good thing. But I guess the counter argument would be if you are too slow to raise interest rates and inflation gets out of control, that hurts the poor a lot who are spending a lot of their money each month. Which is also true. So this is the kind of balancing act the Fed has to manage all the time. You know, can they somehow keep the economy on an even keel when you get these massive shocks like the pandemic and the change in behaviour that followed, while at the same time keeping inflation from getting too high? And to be fair, a lot of the inflation spike that we've seen was not because of anything the Fed could control. Gasoline prices. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> Supply bottlenecks. You know, they can't yeah. control that. Shipping rates, yeah. It's... Can they stop Shanghai closing its ports by raising interest rates? No. I think the fact inflation is high pretty much everywhere is an indication that you can't really blame any one central bank, right? Yeah. I mean, this was a, a kind of mass change of behaviour, which is global. You know, you have a slump in demand, a massive recovery in demand. It was fairly obvious in retrospect that we'd have a huge spike in inflation and commodity prices. So what can the Fed do about that? Well, all they can really control is the surge in wages, which we're starting to see to kind of compensate for the surge in demand and also the surge in commodity prices. So the phrase behind the curve, what people mean by that effectively is 
that the Fed may have been too slow to raise interest rates and tighten its policy. It's not, it's not, it's not a technical term. It's not, there's, there's no kind of curve we're talking about. Because I think people get confused with the yield curve, but that's not what we're talking about here, right? No, it's just a kind of idiomatic thing. You know, behind the curve, you're kind of not reacting quickly enough to new information. It's really what they're saying. Mohamed Elarian has been saying this for a long time, which is that the Fed's behind the curve, that they're going to have to slam on the brakes. And he was right. You know, that's exactly what they're having to do. Is it true that this would get really scary if the Fed did slam on the brakes, so it raised interest rates a lot, and it still didn't slow down inflation? Is that when people would really panic? Oh, yeah. That would, <laughs> that would be very frightening indeed. Because, I mean, the one thing about a, about a central bank is that it has to be credible. I mean, there's this kind of psychological game which it plays where it has expectations, it kind of hints it's going to do this, and often that's enough. I hate that, though, the forward guidance. Just give me the numbers. I don't want to hear all these, like, clues you're just dropping like a board game. <laughs> well, they all give speeches, and they have to be very careful what they say. A lot of them are published on the Fed's website, for example. Is James Bullard being very careful what he says? No. No, <laughs> he's, he's been very clear about what he's saying, which is that, yeah, we're going to get a recession. It's just a question of how large the recession is. And he doesn't think the Fed will be able to manufacture a slowdown without getting a full-on recession. So this is the head of the St. Louis Fed, so we should probably listen to what he's saying here. Oh, he's no idiot, certainly. But look, he doesn't really know. You know, we don't know whether the Fed's going to be able to do this. But it's not going to be comfortable. And if you look at what the markets are pricing in for the FOMC, they're now pricing in rate hikes of 0.5%. So this is a double-notch rate hike for the next three meetings. That is slamming on the brakes. Well, that's already priced into the bond curve. I mean, this is why bond yields have been shooting up at the short end of the curve. That's what's now priced in Fed funds futures. So expectations have suddenly ratcheted up and very rapidly. And is the question of effectively whether the Fed has to hike so hard we get a recession, is that what people mean when they refer to a soft or a hard landing? A hard landing is they have to push us into recession. There's no other way to curb demand. Yeah. So the, the punch bowl is the analogy most people use. The party gets really going for the economy. It overheats. You get high inflation and they leave the punch bowl out too late which means that they have to react even harder, slam on the brakes. They're sick all over the floor in the morning. They're just <laughs> cleaning it up for ages. Oh dear. What if someone's having dinner while listening to this? But at that point, you know, they have to overreact and then, you know, something unpleasant happens, which is a deep recession. What do you think? Do you think they can get us out of this inflationary spike without a recession? Look, eventually there's going to be some kind of recession, no question, because there always is. How far away it is, I, I can't predict that. But certainly the way the Fed's going to hope things happen is that unemployment will increase. The labour market won't be so tight. And when that happens, look at the SARM rule. You know, that's why it's perfectly predicted US recessions over the last 60 years. When unemployment rises fast enough, there's a recession in the US. So it's really a question of how deep it is and how long lasting it is. But, you know, whether it's a technical recession or not really depends on the rate of unemployment increase. That's how the SAM rule works. Nicely hedged. Very good, right? Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't a strategist for nothing. I've had media training, mate. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Remember to check out the new PensionCraft website at pensioncraft.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would be great if you could tell a friend or share it on social media so more people can learn about investing. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh.
This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice. 